Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's episode will be a discussion of the book The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. This book was published in 1987, and along with other female archaeologists working at the time, Eisler proposed theories about humans' prehistoric past that caused quite a stir in the field of archaeology and gave rise to a spiritual goddess movement within feminism in the 1980s and 90s. But before we dive into our text, I'm excited to introduce my first reading partner, Malia Morris. Hi, Malia. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here today. We're, I'm so excited to have this discussion with you. Um, Malia and I are neighbors here in California. And Malia, I really am just thrilled that you joined this project because um, you're just such a brilliant thinker and an amazing person. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you like to do and, and kind of the point of view that you have that you bring to the discussion of the text today. Yes, I would love to. So my name is Malia Morris, and I live here in California. Uh, I have lived all over the country. I was born in Kahuku on Oahu, but I have lived pretty much, it feels like everywhere. I've lived in Utah. I've lived in Arizona, California, Texas, Boston. So we've just kind of been everywhere. Uh, I am a performing artist. I am a singer and voice teacher here in the Bay Area. I am mixed race, so I am Samoan Tongan, and I'm also white. My father is Samoan Tongan, his father is Tongan, his mother is Samoan, and he immigrated when he was a child to Hawaii. So I have a very, uh, you know, diverse background on that side of my family, and I have in my own personal family, I have a blended family. I grew up with a stepfather and step-siblings and half-siblings and full-blooded siblings that were given up for adoption when they were babies. So I have just siblings and cousins and family all over the United States. Uh, I was raised in the Mormon faith, and I consider myself a non-traditional Mormon. Uh, I prefer to live in the gray area rather than the black and white of dogma. I just find it fits my personality more to be somebody who can sort of roll with the punches and adapt as things come my way. And largely that is because of my background. It's because I grew up in a family system where things were really difficult and it really required of me to be in some ways flexible and in other ways very strong. So I tend to find that I, I do really well with challenges because my life was really challenging. Uh, mm. In undergrad, I studied music performance and sociology, and my undergraduate degree is from Arizona State. And I'm very proud that I graduated with honors because college was not easy for me, especially transitioning from high school. And uh, I'm a first-generation college graduate. My dad immigrated to the U.S. when he – I think he was – I, I don't want to quote that, but he was young. He was under the age of 10. Uh, and my mom never graduated from high school, even though her family is very high achieving. Um, I went to gradu graduate, stool, graduate school where I studied dramatic arts at Harvard University. And I was awarded a thesis prize for my research on Broadway Tony Award winning director Diane Paulus and her director, directorial style. So I looked particularly at two different adaptations of musicals that she brought to Broadway 
And because I was at Harvard, I had all this access to the ART, the American Repertory Theater, and all of the staff. And just, it was a really great research opportunity and time for me. And I was really excited because they presented, uh, I was asked to present my thesis at a Harvard symposium. And it was just great. It was a really great time. I had a great time at Harvard. And I think I'm the first woman on either side of my family to hold a graduate degree. I'm pretty sure about that. I don't know if if some, if some cousin comes out to dispute me on that, (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with that, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Um, but yes, let's see. I'm, I'm a wife and a mother of two school-aged children and I love reading and cooking and I have my own business where that keeps me busy all the time. I'm, I'm a voice teacher. Usually in non-COVID time, I would be performing, but I am teaching a lot right now. I started a online business during COVID and now I'm teaching students from all over the world and I have... Uh, a big TikTok following and, you know, a, a good social media presence. So that's been fun during COVID, one silver lining. And yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Just a lot of, a lot of moving parts and trying to keep it all together. That's awesome, Malia. I do have to, to put in a plug for your um, your TikTok videos of your like voice teacher reacting to people singing. It is so addictive and so fun to watch. I still do it when I'm like in a line waiting for something. I'm like, oh, I don't have time to like actually read anything, but I, oh, I'm going to watch Malia's vid, like your latest videos. They're so amazing because they're so insightful. And I learn something really interesting every time about like vocal technique and about like the physiology of the um, like the vocal folds and, and I learn something about music every time I watch one and you're just so positive and uplifting. It's like my favorite thing oh, is your TikTok. Thank <laughs> you, my friend. I appreciate that. Yeah. Check it out. Any listeners just check Malia Morris and you have a website, maliamorris.com. Is I that do right? maliamorris.com. And then my, um, all my social handles are Malia voice studio. Awesome. Yeah, check it out. It's great. Well, thank you so much for that intro, Malia. And um, then the other thing I like to ask is what interested you in doing this project? You know, I think something that we've discussed before, which is that we've had this immense privilege of being educated women and how as educated women, this is a lot of information that I have never interacted with before. I've heard bits and pieces, especially from my degree uh, in sociology. But when it comes to the particulars, Mm -hmm. you know, my knowledge is very scant. So I, for me, I conceptualize the idea of learning about these primary texts as a way to sort of arm myself with information so that when I'm confronted with situations where I'm discussing it or when I'm confronting patriarchy, that I'm just better prepared to understand the process of how things have developed and how to move forward. Yeah, I can definitely relate. I think that's one of the main um, driving forces behind this project is that I feel the same way. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to discuss um, this text with you and launch our project together. Um, So with that, let's dive into the book. And if you don't mind, um, I'd love it, Malia, if you could give us some background on Rianne Eisler and some of the main points that we'll be discussing in this book, The Chalice and the Blade. 
Brianne Eisler is a social system scientist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research, writing, and speaking has transformed the lives of people worldwide. She lived through the Nazi occupation of Austria when she was a child, and she writes the following about that experience. I was born in Vienna, and my parents and I lived there until Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany. On Kristallnacht, so-called because of the glass shattered in Jewish homes, synagogues, and businesses, a gang of Gestapo men broke into our home and dragged my father off. That was terrifying. But that night, I also witnessed something I carried with me for the rest of my life. My mother stood up to those men. Rianne fled from the Nazis of her, with her parents to Cuba as a small child and later immigrated to the United States. She obtained degrees in sociology and law from UCLA. And her lifelong questions about how and why human beings are so brutal to each other led to her work in anthropology. Eisler taught pioneering classes on women and the law at UCLA, and she taught in the Graduate Transformative Leadership Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and the Anthropology Department at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, as well as online through the Center of Partnership Studies and the Omega Institute. She is editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies at the University of Minnesota and president of the Center of Partnership Studies dedicated to research and education on the partnership model introduced by her research. This book is full of information, but we chose to highlight three points. Number one, in multiple locations at various times, there's archaeological evidence of peaceful, woman-centered cultures. Eisler calls these societies partnership cultures. Number two, every one of these societies was eventually overtaken by invaders that brought aggression and the institution of social hierarchies. Eisler calls these societies dominator cultures. And number three, Eisler points out the critical need to involve women in interpreting data. So the first point that we want to highlight today is Rihanna Eisler's emphasis on the partnership cultures. And you'll notice that in introducing this first point, Malia said woman-centered cultures, but she didn't say matriarchies. Um, So definition-wise, patriarchy uh, technically means father rule. So it comes from pater in Latin or like padre in Spanish. And then archy, a ruling structure, like a monarchy means the rule of one person. So in practice, this father rule expands to mean males ruling over females in general. And the dictionary defines patriarchy as a system of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. So a matriarchy, in contrast, would mean mother rule and would be implemented as a system in which women hold the power and men are largely excluded from the power structure. So for me, one of the biggest takeaways that really made me stop in my tracks has been reading that Eisler and actually also some of the other historians that we've read, or actually all of the the historians that we've researched so far, have said that there is no evidence anywhere at any time of a matriarchy existing on this planet in the way that patriarchy has existed. So you might see a culture that's matrilocal. So that would be obviously the mother and then local is the place. So that might mean that when a man and a woman get married, they go and live with the bride's family. And you, so you trace the family's location and home, their ancestral home through the women, which is really 
great for women. And an example that Eisler uses in um, The Chalice and the Blade is in the Neolithic city of Katal Hayuk. Neolithic, of course, means new stone. So this is the Stone Age. This was in 7,500 BCE, one of the most ancient um, civilizations that you'll find um, on Earth. Um, in Katal Hayuk, which is in modern-day Turkey, you find that a woman's sleeping platform is always found in the same place in a dwelling. But the men's sleeping places um, change around. And so that indicates matri matril locality, that the woman stays. And then if a girl gets married, a woman gets married, the husband comes and lives with them. So that's matril locality. But it's not patri it's not matriarchy um, where the women are ruling. You might also see another culture that's matrilineal which means that you would be tracing your um, ancestry through your mother, like the Jewish tradition, or you inherit your mother's name. And there are a handful of cultures all over the world in different times that have been matrilineal. Also, really neat for women, in my opinion, so much better and more balanced than our, our patronyms that we only inherit the names of our fathers. But again, that's not a matriarchy. Um, you might see a culture, and this is where we're going to focus and where Eisler focuses, Cultures that are matrifocal, which obviously means that they're focused more on women. Um, that means, at least in the record that, that they're interpreting in these archaeological digs, that they're finding art that feature women and they depict goddesses and even priestesses. Um, you may even have a family yourself that you feel like is more matrifocal, where maybe you have a really strong grandmother and maybe the interests of your family kind of follow the interests of the daughters. But again, that's not matriarchal because the women are not ruling over the men. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point. Yes, I also thought that was really interesting. It sort of challenges the beliefs that we have of certain families or societies being matriarchal. And I, I wonder how that translates to other cultures as well, especially as we see like this move towards, you know, some egalitarianism. It's just really interesting. I've, I never even conceptualized that there are other ways to interpret female centric families that does not include matriarchy. Mm -hmm. I had the same feeling. And this was interesting for me too, because I had read a little bit um, and encountered a little bit about some of these prehistoric communities that Eisler mentions, but I had encountered them in a context where they were presented as matriarchies. And there was this like really empowering matriarchal past where the women ruled. And so it was kind of, surprising to me, honestly, and disheartening to think like, oh, that's actually never happened. But once I kind of got over it, I thought um, it's actually good to know and made me feel even more, I guess, galvanized and to think like, this isn't right. And and it kind of sets up for what we're going to talk about in a minute too, to see what women actually do when they are valued in society, that they don't turn it into an oppressive model that they turn it more into an egalitarian model, which is something that um, we really believe in. So it's right. kind of a, a mixed feeling that there's never been a matriarchy. Um, so there have been a bunch of cultures, though, that that exhibit um, features of matrilocality, matrilinearity, and um, the matrifocal um, emphasis, I guess. Um, 
And Rianne Eisler calls these the cultures of the chalice. So a chalice, of course, is a cup or a vessel. And that refers to female anatomy, of course, like the, a woman is a chalice and the man is the blade, right? But even beyond that, yeah, Malia. Are you referring to uh, the Da Vinci Code? I feel like that's what ah! people, their reference to the, to the chalice is, it's going to be the Da Vinci Code. Totally. So I, Dan Brown. I think that's subconsciously totally <laughs> <laughs> informing how I was seeing that. That's right. I had forgotten about that. It's exactly right. Um, but Eisler goes beyond that too and says that uh, not only does it kind of refer to female anatomy, but it's actually, if you think about a chalice being a cup that you would drink from or that you would offer to someone else to nourish them and to hydrate them, that these um, partnership societies, these chalice societies are about nur nurturing others, nourishing others and looking out for others. They're about peace and partnership, not about domination. So. Um, one society that she mentions that I wanted to highlight, in addition to Katal Hayuk, which is really worth looking into, even if you just look it up on Wik Wikipedia, it's so interesting. There's hundreds of goddess figurines and um, just this fascinating, ancient, ancient place. But the one that I want to highlight um, is the Minoan civilization. So this is one of my favorite um, things. In fact, when it was my 40th birthday three years ago, um, my husband was awesome and said, where should we go for your 40th birthday? And I wanted to go to Crete because wow. I had learned about the Minoans. Yeah, it was so amazing. Um, and I had like a bunch of, I'd seen a bunch of pictures in textbooks and I'd encountered them a handful of times in different classes and books. Um, and I wanted to be there and it was, it was incredible. So just for a bit of background, um, the Minoans thrived, whereas Katal Hayuk was like 7,500 BCE, the Minoans are way much, much later, from about 2000 BCE to about 1400 BCE. So just for a point of reference, that's during the Middle Kingdom in Egypt, like a few hundred years after the pyramids were built. Okay. It's also late enough in history that they did have a written record, but just infuriatingly, no one has been able to crack the code yet. Yes. That is so frustrating. I so know. we don't have like a Rosetta Stone or anything for that. Nope. No, there's a few different lines. They call them linear A, linear B. There might be a third that I'm forgetting the name of, but they have um, a couple of different, I don't know if they're dialects or just written styles of writing, but there's all this information about a possibly woman-centered egalitarian society and they wrote a record and we found it and no one can read it. So it's just the most infuriating thing. I like have dreams at night that I'm the linguist that breaks the code and <laughs> finds out what they talked about. Yes. It's um, like your Da Vinci code. You need to make this happen. Read yeah, the symbols. Except real, real <laughs> Except scholarship. Not Dan Brown. Not Dan Brown. No, real scholarship. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, one other interesting point, which is so funny, is that they're called the Minoans because the British archaeologist, Sir Arthur Evans, that unearthed this giant palace on the island of Crete. Crete, by the way, I should have mentioned if I couldn't have picked it out on a map before looking at it. It's just south of Greece. It's part of the nation of Greece now, but just south of Greece. And then there's another island called Santorini, a little bit above that. And that's where the mm -hmm. Minoans lived. Um, yeah. Anyway, when not he... Not a bad place to live. Not at all. Not <laughs> then and not now either. Um, so when Sir Arthur Evans unearthed this huge 
palace complex on the island of Crete in the year 1900. He saw a giant maze right to the side of the palace. And he thought, oh my gosh, I found the labyrinth of the minotaur that Daedalus made in Greek, Greek mythology. And of course, the king of that mythological city was named King Minos, not Midas, but M-I-N-O-S, Minos. And so um, Evans called the ancient people that had lived there the Minoans after King Minos that he imagined, um, which seems like a real missed opportunity to me, given that it was like one of the more women-centric societies. And he still named them after a man. <laughs> Just I know. Drives me nuts. Um, anyway, so to turn to Eisler to open her book and see some of the descriptions um, to kind of bring to life what these archaeologists were digging up. There's this incredibly sophisticated palace and this amazing surrounding city. And they noticed some striking features. And I'm going to actually just read on page 31 one of her descriptions. So well into the Bronze Age, this is Eisler talking, when goddesses in other places like Egypt and Babylon were being subsumed by male gods, the goddess reigned supreme on Crete. It is the goddess who rides her griffin-drawn chariot to bear a dead man to his new life. And it is the priestesses of the goddess, not the priests, who play the central role in the ritual depicted on the frescoes. It is they who lead the procession and who extend their hands to touch the altar. Um, wow. I was really moved by that. I don't know how you felt, Malia, but growing up in the religious tradition that I grew up in, um, that was like personally really touching to me that the women were so valued that they were able to officiate in uh, whatever religion that they practiced in worship of the goddess and that the women were co-equal and worthy with the men to officiate in that, um, I thought was really powerful. Yeah, I agree. I think that's something that's really powerful to women, especially in you know, Western religions where women don't always have access to these same roles. So knowing that we have these ancient goddesses, which I just love that term goddess, there's just mm -hmm. like so much inherent power and in like priestesses and goddesses. It's such like a powerful term that we have these women that were doing these really essential, vital parts of these really important rituals that we still do today. I mean, we still have death rituals mm -hmm. and these, these come from these ancestors, these come from this, you know, line of ritualized moments in time that are important. Yeah, that's really true. That And that makes me think of like Catholic um, last rites, for example, that are so beautiful um, when a priest is able to be with a dying person and administer comfort to them and within the framework of their own religious beliefs. But the fact that that's limited to a male in all cases, and it can never be a woman administering those last rites. I just think, um, I guess I, I would, it just means a lot to me to imagine myself as being able to perform that for someone too, and be at the gateway of birth and death right. in that way. So um, another um, really vivid and important image besides the goddess and priestess images that are everywhere. And Eisler talks about them a lot. And then I was so lucky to be able to see because there really are like these bright colored frescoes of women that are like beautiful and healthy. Um, they always have bare breasts, 
maybe not always, almost always, I saw a lot of boobs on this trip. <laughs> they were ahead of the trend. That's like really the trend now. That's very on point. <laughs> yeah, that's way to true. go, ladies. Yeah, way to go, ladies. Exactly. Um, and ponytails and earrings. There was something so like modern and relatable about these frescoes um, of priestesses and also of young men and women together participating in these Yes, Malia. Oh, so interesting when you bring that up. It, it brought to my mind that a lot of times in modern modern societies, we tend to think that women adorn themselves as a way to attract men, that this is like a societal condition that we have been sociologically, you know, conditioned to do this. And yet we see these women in these partnership models who are doing it without a dominant patriarchy, correct? Isn't that interesting? Totally. Yeah. I've never even thought about that, that like they're doing this on their own because it I mean, assuming we can interpret this, right, that they were doing it because it was something that they found value in as opposed to using it as a way to attract a mate. And it could have been used to be attractive. Totally. But outside of the scope of needing that in order to gain access to power through the man. Right. Exactly. Needing to, like we'll see later when we discuss, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft or some, or these um, women writers in the 18th century before then and after then as well, where a, a girl only has value once she's married, right? So right. this is a very different way of being attractive, right? And and Eisler actually writes, that reminds me, Malia, you'll remember this part where she writes about um, that both the men and the women dressed without shame of their sexuality, right? Like they- I love that. I loved it too. Like kind of very little clothing, but with this joyousness, in fact, there's like a prince depicted and with, instead of being in like armor and with weapons or the women being sexy, rather they're like depicted together and they're always in nature. And um, what I was going to say too about these young men and women um, participating in sports together, which is just so again, relatable and to reflect that later, at least in our European and American history, that women weren't allowed to, almost weren't even allowed to leave their living rooms and their cross-stitch, right? But, and here we have like these, these healthy, vital young men and women who are grabbing the, the horns of bulls and basically like relying on each other to do these acrobatics onto the backs of bulls, super dangerous work. And they're working together um, to do these really elaborate sporting games and that's and all they're depicting... doing it without bras <laughs> <laughs> which is way admirable for so many reasons like these these are the og women let it, me tell you that is the truth yes way before spandex was invented <laughs> that is brave right. i love it i love it um Let's see. So yes, just the egalitarianism. Oh, one more thing that I really wanted to highlight that was um, fascinating to me. And I remember learning this actually in a class in grad school. And I like, I think my jaw dropped as my professor was talking about this. Okay, so everywhere in in uh, the Minoan culture on Crete as well, and you see this in the museums um, that house the artifacts, are goddesses that are holding up snakes. So I actually hate snakes. And so that was something I'm like, I'm going to have to rehabilitate myself so that I can reclaim my, um, my inner goddess or the the symbol that's, that's been robbed from me. So uh, this was really interesting though, that he talked about that in many prehistoric cultures, that the snake is the sign of the goddess. And my professor um, brought up that when the Bible was being authored and they were writing down these oral traditions that had been passed down and passed down for hundreds of years, 
um, that the authors chose to depict Satan as a snake. There's a school of thought that sees that as a deliberate choice because the, you know, the surrounding areas were really, um, really into goddess worship and they knew that snakes were a sign of the goddess. And so they represented the snake as Satan, as something evil, um, which is, it just kind of broke my heart. And really, I thought about that for days afterwards. But it was interesting, too, that the symbol pops up elsewhere in the Bible that where it has retained its original meaning, where um, it's a healing symbol, like when Moses holds up the, ser- the serpent on the staff to heal Israel when they've been bitten by the serpents, and he holds this, the staff up with the serpent. And that lives on today as the symbol for the, pra- for the um, practice of medicine. So it so- still retains that power. My question to you is at some point, do we see that symbol become, you know, a part of a patriarchal tradition? Is that what we're seeing here? Like I'd never even thought about that. Is that something that we're seeing where it's like used in one way as a symbol to tempt Eve and then another being sort of, I don't know, taking that snake and making it like fortifying it and like we will fortify you to our use. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud, but I'd never even conceptualized that at the same time, we're using the snake as a way to tempt and also as a symbol of power mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, I mean, as you say it like that, and this is me just thinking aloud, and this is where like, I'm not a scholar on this topic, but this would be such an interesting paper to write. Don't you think like the right. ambivalent or the ver- the conflicting um, meanings and valence of the snake it's yeah a paradox it's used with completely different meanings my guess and maybe this is just me kind of remembering vaguely this lecture is that there i i believe there was a school of thought that thought that it was deliberate that they cast satan or the devil or whatever the tempter as a snake on purpose and that the snake in the healing manifestation was just like we kind of forgot to edit that out. You know what I mean? Uh, like they didn't okay. go to, but, but we need but to do knows? some snake research. We do. We do indeed. That's the second, that's the, the second addendum to this podcast yes. is breaking down snake history. <laughs> I think I'll let you take that one. Okay. I seriously <laughs> like have almost a phobia. So maybe not, but, um, but yeah, that is a really powerful image. And it's so cool to see all of those. Go- I mean, it's powerful to see a woman, a bare breasted woman, both arms above her head, and she is double fisting venomous serpents. I mean, there isn't really a more powerful image than that. And there are lots and lots of those figurines that were unearthed right. um, on Crete. So um, just the, la- you know, at the last part, I guess, of this point of the partnership um, cultures that I'll share quickly is just that Eisler points out, and I was able to see this too, especially on the island of Santorini, which is smaller. And the Minoans went there later. Um, They were on Crete for a long time. Then they went to Santorini. And we saw this um, incredible, really well-preserved archaeological site. Um, And our guide pointed out that, I mean, there were so many sophisticated um, elements to the city where they had indoor plumbing and paved roads and like indoor air conditioning with the wind coming through the buildings so that they, it would cool them down in the summer. One amazing thing was that the houses were just about all the same size. You couldn't pick out who was rich and who was poor. You couldn't pick out a palace or a hovel. And um, Eisler points out that 
the standard of living, even of the peasants, seems to have been really high, and none of the homes suggest poor living conditions. And that is a really important point in understanding the partnership model, I think, that if it's a society based on the chalice and on partnership, then it's oriented toward giving and nourishing all the members of society and on appreciating nature and just having kind of a joy de vivre um, that you don't see in dominator models. So were there any other things that struck you in this section, Malia? I think as we're just wrapping it up, it, it keeps coming back to me that in this model, we don't see one part of the society that's really out of sync with each other. We see just the synchronicity. That's that's a word, right? Syn- yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working together. Sometimes you say it and you're not sure. But working <laughs> together to really achieve all of these technological advances, because something that we'll talk about later is that that's, that's often used as an argument against societies that maybe were more matriarchal or, you know, female focused, that we need sort of this bum rushing in, using weaponry to accomplish it. And what we're seeing is for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, women were doing this with men hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Just to know that it's a possibility is a beautiful thing to hold hope for. In fact, isn't that the tagline of her book, Our Past, Our Future? I think right below the title. But it's a possible model. Yep. Yeah, which is I think is the best way to summarize that whole section is that if you were wondering, yes, there have been periods of time where men and women work together where patriarchy was not the dominant model. Yep. Which is just, it's mind-blowing. It is. Right? Yep. So as we move into the second section of our topics, which is going to be discussing the dominator model, which we've sort of alluded to, but we're going to discuss a little bit more illustrating what that means. So around 5000 BCE, we start to see shifts, uh, disruption in the old Neolithic cultures, which is the Stone Age in the Near East. So in the book, they talk about Kurgan waves of Indo-European invaders that come to Mesopotamia and that this happened over time. We see pockets of time happening where you have a thousand years here and then maybe a couple more thousand years. So this wasn't just one sudden snap and it happened. It was sort of a gradual trickle down where things slowly start to switch over time. So within this, you see all of these different societies through Mesopotamia be impacted by the shift. So what all of these invasions had in common is that they had a dominator model of social organization. So at its core of the invaders system, it's the placing of higher value on the power that takes rather than that that gives life, which again, harkens to something that Amy was talking about earlier, right? With the chalice model, this idea of life giving versus life taking. So another part that comes a part of this dominator model are two things that I found personally interesting. One is the advent or the emergence of what we see as weaponry. So correct me if I'm wrong, but previous to the t- this time, we do not see strong evidence archaeologically of strong prominence put on weaponry in the way that we see over time after the shift with the dominator model. Yeah, that was my that's my recollection as well. In fact, I remember that the Minoans city, um, that city was thriving at the same time as again, like 
big, big civilizations in Egypt and Babylon, and they were walled, fortressed cities, heavily like um, investing into military. And the Minoans had no wall around their city; they had boats. But um, on the again on the frescoes and in the the artistic representations of the people, where you would expect to find lots of weapon imagery, there just wasn't. It was just absent. That was one of those things that maybe you wouldn't even notice at first because of its absence. And then you go, wait, that's a prince. Where's his sword? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, you just don't see, they were not into war and fighting for sure. So that really dovetails into our second point, which is that we see the emergence of weapons. And we also see the emergence of weapons in these Indo-European warrior gods. We start seeing Mm -hmm. depictions of, you know, uh, spears and axes with long shafts. So we start seeing this emergence happening in these religious ideas. So there we transform that into the idea too of this domination model. We also get the emergence of slavery, at least slavery in an archaeological record-keeping sense, like that we know from that time period that that's happening. So I'm just going to read this part where we talk about uh, just the emergence of that. So this is coming from the book. Weapons obviously represented the gods' functions of powers and were worshipped as representations of the gods themselves. The sacredness of the weapon is well evidenced in the Indo-European religions. No previous engravings or weapons, images of weapon-carrying divinities are known in the Neolithic Alpine religion. So pretty strong indication that we just... We don't have anything that's happening in that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other thing that's really interesting during this time as we see this shift is that we start seeing that different burial practices, right? Yes. So Amy talks about earlier that we have these goddesses that are ushering men into afterlife and, and we see this just really beautiful imagery. And what we start to see is how exceptionally tall or large-boned male skeletal skeletons that are buried with sacrificial women. Mm -hmm. We start seeing wives and concubines and slaves of men who died, which this directly contrasts to what we see in Crete, correct? Mm -hmm. It does. In fact, I was just going to say that I didn't mention before that that was another bit of archaeological evidence that Eisler cites for a really quite democratic and um, non-hierarchical society is that not only did they have similarly sized dwellings, but that their burial sites were all pretty similar. Like there weren't, like you would picture a pharaoh in Egypt just buried with like an entire, like rooms full of gold. People mm-hmm. were just buried without um, a, a big difference in wealth in their mm-hmm. tombs and certainly not buried with other human beings that were sacrificed. <laughs> At the time of their death. So anyway, yes, that's, I'm remembering the same thing as you from the book. Yeah, Molly. Okay, good. So I'm not, I'm not completely misremembering. <laughs> We're doing some justice to Rian Eisler here. Okay. So you just see these, these changes and it actually reminds me, I don't have the timelines correct, but when we went to Scandinavia, we went to a Viking museum in Oslo. Hmm. And I remember that you see these men buried in these ships with like all of their, you know, stuff, all mm-hmm. of their swords and gold and concubines. And it's, it's really like this 
idolatry to men. Yeah. So we just basically what we're seeing at this time is we're just seeing this entire shift towards domination. And then later what we see in the archaeological model is as historians are sifting through this information and finding it, what they're doing is they're coming to the hypothesis that, you know, this female-centric art of of bare-breasted women is erotic. They're framing Mm -hmm. these things as being so different to what now we understand as as them representing. They see, you know, original Neolithic art that that they interpret as being axes or or harpoons. And what we actually think now based on the records is that probably indicated plant life. So we just see this kind of entirely different structural, structural worldview that everything that existed before was dominated by this male centric perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that really indicates to us that the sort of history that we're working off of is entirely framed through the concept of male historians mm-hmm. and male archaeologists and male writers, and that it took thousands and hundreds of years later for people to finally look at this and say, is there another way to interpret this information? Yeah, for sure. Um, This is maybe not exactly on topic with where you were going, Malia, but one of the parts that really um, jumped out to me because of something that I had on my mind um, prior to reading the book is the, um, as I was reading about these dominer societies, I'd been wrestling with something that I'd heard from Jordan B. Peterson, whom you and I have talked about. Um, That's he's right. A, <laughs> he's a psychology. He's controversial. The controversial Jordan B. Peterson. Yes, he had yes. been recommended to me by someone I know. And so I had never heard of him. And so I was um, poking around on the internet and I listened to a couple of his um, talks. And I had just listened to this online lecture where he um, defended patriarchy and, and he's a psychology professor. He has a PhD. He's a, I, he's a brilliant man with some really interesting ideas on mythology and human behavior. And, um, so he's no slouch. He knows what he's talking about. Um, at least he believes what he's talking about and he does know what he's talking about, but, um, he was defending patriarchy saying that male aggression, was the energizing force of Western civilization. And he said something like, just paraphrasing him, but um, make no mistake that those who want to maybe say the upend or something, patriarchy, they would want to erase Western civilization because there is no Western civilization without patriarchy. Um, And then he goes on to imply that if it weren't for that aggressive um, dominating male that we would still all be basically living in the mud if it had been up to females. So I had that on my mind already. It really, I mean, obviously that's not as a woman to read that. It like made me angry. It, it hurt, but I thought maybe he's right. Is that true? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is it true? I have no idea. This well, is we what we wouldn't know. Right. Because we we've never know. been taught. <laughs> exactly. Never been taught any differently. Exactly. That, it, I mean, it reminds me exactly to your point of what you said in, in our introduction in the last episode about like having a conversation with someone where you're like, oh, I do not want that to be true. Or that just sits wrong. But I don't know how to argue back because I don't know women's history. Anyway. I, I, I didn't, surely. Like none of this even remotely resonated with me. And I've, I've had discussions within the last few months on this topic with men 
and they've come to conclusions very similar to Jordan Peterson. And yeah. that's because you have people who are looking at the foundation of time through a very male-centric perception, which, you know, it's in their favor because there's yeah. so much written that way. That's so I right. think it's really easy for people like Jordan Peterson to come to these conclusions because that's what we have generally as the foundation of that history. That's right. That's the default, right? But that's and- literally like saying for women, like if we if we flip the switch and saying, oh, actually, no, women controlled everything and it was women who had the technological advances and women did everything and we're only going to give you female history. So that's, you know, the confirmation bias that anything that you come up with otherwise is going to be wrong because exactly. we're telling you it's all female. Exactly. Exactly. Like you, see, you see the you see, see the logical fallacy in that. Right. Exactly. Like, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Because you have everybody's wearing the same glasses. So you're not able to be scientifically objective, right? When we've only seen it from one point of view. Absolutely. But so that's why this was so empowering, right? This this part where Eisler writes, um, she addresses this exact thing that I had had on my mind. Um, and I could have thought, I mean, I had already been to Santorini and Crete, but I, I it, I didn't think to have that information answer this question at the time, but I'm going to read just a a teensy bit, a little excerpt on page 66, where Eisler answers Jordan B. Peterson. They're having a conversation 20 years apart from each other, and I doubt he's read her book. Um, Jordan, if you're listening, go read The Chalice and the Blade. Okay, here's the excerpt. It says, it is a widespread assumption that however bloody things may have been since the days of the Sumerians and Assyrians, This was just the unfortunate prerequisite for technological and cultural advance. It's exactly what he was saying. Um, Okay, back to Eisler. Quote, if the savages who existed prior to our earliest civilizations were peaceable, it is reasoned they would naturally, lacking the proper motivation, have produced little of any lasting value. For the spur of war has been necessary to bring on all technological and cultural advance. However... The data we are now examining tell us the same things we are learning from the archaeological excavations. This is that one of the best kept historical secrets is that practically all the material and social technologies fundamental to civilization were developed before the imposition of a dominator society. Um, And so she goes on. It's so powerful. There's data, right? That's how you can answer that question. And she goes on to say that, like, how important it is to know that, that there we would have perhaps there's there's a choose your own adventure path where we could have taken the partnership path and we could have developed all of the maybe maybe it would have I mean, certainly it would have developed differently, but we would not be without technology. We would not be without sophisticated art forms, but maybe what we could have avoided is slavery. Maybe what we could have avoided is sexual exploitation if we had... Mm -hmm. Female subjugation. Exactly. Subjugation of all different um, human beings over the course of time and maybe even animal abuse. I mean, it just... The partnership model would have been a completely different trajectory. And so she talks about how um, emotionally important it is for women to know that we have that in our past, but also how scientifically important it is to know that that is a fact, that there is hard evidence, that there are artifacts, there are buildings you can look at. Um, uh, Like I said, on Santorini, you can see all of the the indoor plumbing from a a culture in, you know, 2000 BCE. It's just powerful to know that all of those things are possible with with a partnership model. It does not require 
the domination and subjugation of other people. Absolutely. Because that's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about men being absent from this. We're talking about a model where we are more equal. Because what we see in this dominator model, what she talks about in the book, is how everywhere men with the greatest power to destroy the physically strongest, most insensitive, most brutal, those are the ones who rise to the top. Mm-hmm. So we see the social structure become more hierarchic and authoritarian. And women who are as a group are physically smaller and weaker than men are most closely identified with the old view of power symbolized by the life-giving and sustaining chalice are now reduced to the status that they are to hold hereafter, male-controlled technologies of production and reproduction, right? And even we, we talked about this a little bit before is that the goddess herself gradually becomes the wife or the consort of these male deities. So yeah. you see that later on as these Greco-Roman mythologies pop up, they take these ancient goddesses, these awesome bare-breasted bull riding goddesses and they make them consorts yeah and so it was not just that we saw in physical society it embedded the actual divinity of their world Mm -hmm. and just how you know in some ways it makes you grateful that it happened over thousands of years and not gradually i mean not quickly because had Mm -hmm. it happened quickly you cannot imagine the catastrophic emotional effect that that would have had on those people. So let's move on to the final point, which is something that we've already began to discuss and summarize because these points really do dovetail into each other. But this is when only men are looking at the data, we're only going to get men's interpretations. And I think this is such an important part to end on because it's not suggesting that men don't have an important role in this. It's simply to say that with any organization, I mean, if you want to compare it to like a board today or a company, if you only have women, if you only have men, there may be parts that we're missing, right? We're not getting a full bodied view. So Mm -hmm. if we include people and just even beyond the scope of men and women, if we're including people of color, if we're, you know, including, uh, women, if we're using LGBTQ community, right? Like we're, we're including this wider net of people, we're going to get a more balanced, applicable view of how we should approach problems that we confront. And so what we see from the archaeological perspective is we see just the entire male-centric view of of everything being eroticized when it comes to these female goddesses. We see the emergence of thinking of, you know, artwork as being inherently weaponry when we know for a for archaeological purposes that that doesn't even show up for thousands of years later. And it it just, it's just to say that we're not denigrating the male point of view, but that we need to include, include other people in this conversation, right? It reminds me of Hamilton where Angelica says, you know, I'm, I'm going to compel Thomas Jefferson to include women in the sequel Mm -hmm. just to simply to say, there's more voices here that we're leaving untapped. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm I'm looking right now at Eisler's book where um, Evans and and this also I mean to give people credit too I think has to do with the time and place in which they live as well, right? Sir Arthur Evans as he's discovering the Minoan people. It's in 1900, so kind of everything he writes he's seeing weapons where actually later they're like, no, those are plants, as you talked about. Or if he sees a woman with bare breasts, he thinks like, oh, that's pornography. It's it's very sexual when maybe it's not. And he also, um, I'm reading this place where it, the, the paintings of Cretan women, he called, quote, the feminine tittle-tattle of society scandals. That's what the women, that, right? 
Is it? Start using that in day to day life. What a bunch of tittle tattle. Tittle tattle. But if there's women gathered together talking, then it must be the feminine tittle tattle of society scandals. They certainly right. aren't. They couldn't be priestesses. The thing no. is, he's not thinking: Are they priestesses or are they trite, shallow teenage girls just talking about like reading People magazine? He's not making a choice. It's just the lens that he's because been taught he's, to see the right. world. Right, he's coming right? to the table with right. a predetermined model exactly. of how to to view this. And I think even as women, as we're interacting with this text, you know, a lot of times when I read this book, I, I had to put it down and just process because it's so different from everything that you, uh, you know, like you grow up with. You think mm-hmm. of yourself, like, what is it? Like the, the analogy of like the water and the tea bag, like you're just steeped in it. We're steeped yeah. in this and we unconsciously hold these perceptions of why things are the way they are. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a really common critique from people is that like, well, it's natural, like Jordan B. Peterson ideas of like men would be in charge because they're strongest. And and what we're saying is that's not actually the case. So Mm -hmm. we're not negating that men were strong and that they probably were hugely important in doing certain things. Like, like, for example, in the book that they talk about was the hunter gatherer model, which Mm -hmm. in fact, the gatherer perspective is how they survived. Hunting was a, a rare thing uh, that because they wouldn't have likely encountered game in the way that they could have kept it fresh or they could have used it. So ga- gathering was really their way of life. And I know this because I read another book on food and nutrition where they talk about that when they're countering kind of these paleolithic diets where they talk about like gathering is, it really shouldn't be called hunter gatherer. It should be called gatherer hunter. Oh, so even just simple things like that, where we see things swapped, even in something so so small, like it geared towards the men again. Like, oh, it must have been that they had the men hunt because that makes sense. They're strong, they're bulky, they can go kill. But what you actually see is that through the records of the things that they ate and then the way that that we see the archaeology is that they were gathering. They were eating, you know, things that they could gather. It wasn't purely focused on hunting. They didn't have a way to store the food. Right. Right. So that is pretty much what we got out of the book, yeah. if I'm speaking correctly, I think yeah. that, that there's so much more to this book. It's incredible. I mean, we highly recommend that you read it. But as we went through and have discussed this and spent the time really figuring out the points that we want to come across, that those are the main things that we have. So to just summarize those again quickly, number one, in multiple locations at various times, there are archaeological evidence of peaceful women-centered cultures. Again, that's not the same as matriarchal. That's women-centered cultures. And Eisler calls these societies partnership cultures where we see... Yes. Oh, sorry, Malia. I just wanted to throw in again because I want to make sure that we're not... That I'm not saying like the women were the heroes and the men were (laughs) terrible. And I think some of the conversation with this book contend toward that because the men really were the bad guys in this story. But what, so I guess what I want to, what I want to throw in at the end is remembering that when you get a, um, a Kurgan invasion, when you get a Hitler, when you get a Pol Pot, when you get a, a Stalin who comes in and just dominates, men suffer too. It's not just like all of the men are oppressing all of the women. It's um, you get a bully who rises to the top, kind of, you know, taints the whole barrel of apples and gets, you know, cronies behind him. And then they can, because like you said, they're bigger, they're stronger. And certainly if they have weapons, 
later we'll see if they have guns, germs, and steel, right? You get a bunch of men who come in and they terrorize and brutalize other men as well. They do it to everybody. And so that's the beauty of the partnership culture is that, again, like you, like you just said, um, it's not a matriarchy. It's a partnership where those men and women are riding the bull together and they are hunting and gathering. They're not, the Minoans were not hunter gatherers, but these, these partnership cultures that we're talking about are beautiful and ideal in my mind, at least because they're egalitarian because both sexes can work together as equal partners. Yeah. I think that basically kind of explains our whole thrust of this project is that Mm -hmm. this is in no way a way to denigrate men. Like I have a little boy, I have a husband who I love and I, I'm not interested in that kind of model where we say, you know, men, you need to leave the equation. You don't matter anymore. I I'm interested in looking forward to the future to look at my little boy and say, how can we make sure that the world that you're going into is something that's going to work for you and for your, your partner or, you know, how, how is that going to work? Yeah. And yeah, I think that's just a perfect explanation of that. And the truth is we're going to discuss that more that patriarchy hurts men too. It does yeah. not just hurt women. It hurts okay. men tremendously. So this, the second point to summarize our podcast is that every one of these societies was eventually overtaken by invaders that brought aggression and the institution of social hierarchies. Eisler calls these societies the dominator cultures. And then the final point Eisler points out that the critical need to involve women in interpreting the the data, and we're even expanding that more to say, not just women, like we need people generally just at this discussion, LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. people of color, et cetera, indigenous people, like we, we need more and more perspective. And we're really seeing that, you know, with this second civil rights movement right now in the United States is we're seeing the need for other voices at the table. That's exactly right. Yeah. Awesome, Malia. That was great. I learned so much. I did too. It's a great book. It really was. Well, thank you for joining us for this discussion of The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. Our next episode, we will be discussing The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. It's an incredibly important work, and because there's so much to discuss, we'll be breaking it into two parts. In part one, we'll cover some different aspects of the Neolithic period and Mesopotamia in greater depth, and then the subjugation of the ancient goddesses. And then in part two, the next episode, we'll tackle the Hebrew Bible and ancient Greece. So we're excited for you to join us as we learn together on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.